0: Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson speaking to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. We are here for another episode of The Learning Curve. I'm here with Kara, uh, who in many ways, I'm her sidekick, just to keep the theme going. So glad to have you on board and to allow me to spend time with you every week.
1: You know, you're welcome. Thank you're you. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going <telling you. laughs> I say my kids at my husband all the time. Mm-hmm, you're welcome. No, Gerard. Listen, it's National School Choice Week. I don't know. Do you feel as busy as I do? National School Choice Week. We don't. I I, we don't do. have a choice not to be busy this week.
0: Given what I do, I look forward to it every year. Uh, as you know, I've recently moved, and my yellow scarf is packed. On the <gasps> box. But I've got what are two you of doing them
1: on Zoom. Are you faking it? Uh,
0: no, I'm just not wearing it.
1: Oh, Gerard. Yes. Shh. Don't As let the years, National School Choice week people hear you. I warned
0: that yellow scarf. I think I'm given uh, one year off uh, not to do it. But I'm celebrating because, of course, I posted an op ed to talk about the great things of School Choice Week, which is January 25th through the 29th. It's to really celebrate public and private choice, whether it's the 4,340 magnet schools in the country that actually educate one out of every 15. Uh, Students enrolled in public schools, whether it's the 3.3 million students in our charter schools. And just think when this started back in uh, 2010, initially with support for the Gleason Family Foundation with a kickoff the following year, you know, we didn't have 44 states in the District of Columbia, so we've Uh made some. Great progress. And thanks to the work that, you know, your organization, Excel and and the work of Pioneer Institute, we now have 26 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, that operate 55 publicly supported scholarship programs serving approximately 500,000 students, which we could double, in fact, if we had more seats and laws that would open them up. But that is another story.
1: Right. But excitingly, a lot of legislation pending. I mean, boy, oh, boy. Uh, I think uh, legislators in a lot of states are finally getting the message from parents that they need more options. So we'll see. I think this could be one of the biggest years since since the beginning. So we'll keep an eye on it.
0: And in fact, it could be a really good year, not only for private schools, but for Catholic schools. And I think you have something to share with us about that. I-
1: do so. You had a great op-ed out this morning, and just this week with Pioneer Institute and the wonderful Chris Sinicola, we have released um, an edited volume um, looking at Catholic schools in Massachusetts. The book is called "A Vision of Hope," um, and it's a compilation of stuff. Like, man, we've got some really great people, Gerard. Folks who have been on this podcast, no doubt. Um, contributions from people like Jason Bedrick and Patrick Wolf, um, and really, you know, what we're doing in this book, Gerard is, as I said, it's a a compilation. So some of the articles were written years ago, but remain really relevant today. And the purpose is to take a look, um, not only at all of the good that Catholic schools do, um, and how they have well, survived against great odds, but just mm-hmm. not, it's not just about doing good. It's about how vital they are. It is about how important they are to so many families, um, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and across the country. And so, um, in, in, Putting out this edited volume, especially right now during National School Choice Week, um, and next week I think is National Catholic Schools Week. There's so many NCSWs. Gerard, I, sometimes I get confused, mm-hmm. but all of them important. Um, in doing this at this time, we really hope to highlight this issue because it's such an important one. I mean, here we are. Catholic schools have you know over 120 Catholic schools, mostly in urban centers, mostly serving um, children who can't afford. To pay tuition, those are the schools that have been closing. So um at this time we're writing this book to pressure states, yes, like Massachusetts. To um, follow the lead of the, you know, more than half of states across this country have recognized that educational opportunity matters and that needs to include um, tuition-based schools, including Catholic schools. So we have an opportunity, and our guest today is going to talk about that opportunity. Uh, but it's time for for states that haven't done it yet to really get the ball rolling on this.
0: Look forward to reading it.
1: So cover my- to cover, you will of right. Course.
0: And given the fact that I've written about Catholic education and have a scholarship named after my teacher, and no one asked me to write, but hey, that's just a side note uh, on that piece.
1: (laughs) All right, sidekick, (laughs) next time. Next time. Next
0: time. Well, as we're talking about policy, politics, and the people who can make things happen, my article is focused on the education department and the early appointments to it and the links they have to Dr. Jill Biden and the Teachers Union. And this is from January 22nd from Education Week. Andrew who writes a great deal about education. Uh, just identified uh, names and former affiliations with either the Obama administration, with working for Biden himself when he was vice president and or having connections to the Department of Education and the union uh, area. So this article is really interesting because it's telling us two things. Number one, we knew that there would be a number of people with affiliations to the teachers union affiliated with this administration. That's number one. And number two, uh, President uh, Biden was really clear up front that he was gonna make sure there was an educator uh, in that seat, and he's done that thus far. And he also said that teachers would have a strong voice, and a number of those teachers are represented by unions. As you know, Carl, I've actually published an article at the time that uh, the former NEA president was under consideration. I wrote an article, said why Biden should to pick a union president to be Secretary of Ed, but also knowing if that, that did not happen, there would be a strong teacher union influence. On education policy when you win an election uh, it comes with the power to appoint people you like uh, whether they may have different opinions about choice catholic schools and otherwise than i do but uh, i also think there's some opportunities with people who've actually worked for unions and work with teachers to bring in a fresh pair of eyes to look at how we should deliver teaching and learning so while i know there'll be some challenges to Private school choice, the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. I do think there's some opportunities for people with teacher union contracts, or I should say affiliations, to uh, do something different that we have not seen in the last four years.
1: I, you know, Gerard, I. I do actually, I mean, at this time, I appreciate your optimism. I'm a little bit more worried about um, charter schools than I am about private school choice under this administration. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, there is so much work to be done right now. There is so much work to be done that I think that we're going to see more of that work getting done than we are, I'm, I'm hoping, than we are obstructionism in this vein. And the other part of it is, is that You know, uh, parents are speaking really loudly right now. They've always been loud, but, um, you know, unfortunately, it sometimes it takes um, parents to speak up in greater numbers and those uh, with with more access and greater privilege to speak up. But I think that, you know, we're having a moment and uh, the means of getting there might not be exactly what we want, but it's we're going to we're, we're going to see some positive change. And and I agree with you that we need to be open to, to our new secretary and to whomever he brings on board to advise him in this. Now, Gerard, coming up after this, we are going to be speaking to an old friend of yours and somebody that I have to say, you know, since I'm so much younger than you, my friend, yes. um, I haven't, I haven't been around like, right, not really, but, um, an old friend of yours and somebody who, oh, wow. um, his, one, his first book, man really got me into this field. So, um, we're gonna be speaking with justice Clint Bullock right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are back with Justice Clint Bolick. He serves on the Arizona Supreme Court and previously was the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Bolick has argued in one cases in the United States Supreme Court, the Arizona Supreme Court, and state and federal courts from coast to coast. Indeed, if you follow anything in school choice, you you know his work. (laughs) Um, Before joining Goldwater in 2007, he was co-founder of the Institute for Justice and later served as president of the Alliance for school choice. In 2003, American lawyer recognized Bullock as one of three lawyers of the year for his successful defense of school choice programs, culminating in Zelman versus Simmons Simmons Harris in the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2009, Legal Times named Bullock one of the 90 greatest D.C. lawyers in the past 30 years. He has authored several books, most recently, Unshackled, Freeing America's K-12 Education System, Death Grip, Loosening the Law's Stranglehold, over economic liberty, David's Hammer, The Case for an Activist Judiciary, and Voucher Wars, which I remember very well from my time as a doctoral student. It's sort of one of the books that got me into this field, but the, the title is Voucher Wars, Waging the legal battle over school choice published in two thousand and three. Bullock serves as a research fellow with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He received his law degree from University of California at Davis and his undergraduate degree from Drew University. Justice Bullock, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the learning curve today.
2: Well, it's a real pleasure. and I'm really glad to hear that that book had a a positive impact that uh alone makes it worth having written.
1: <laughs> it it sure did. I promise you I would not be in the job that I am today uh were it not for that book. So thank you. Um and we so, you know so many of our listeners are are um interested in school choice, advocates of school choice, maybe maybe some are not, but but um certainly it's a topic that we talk about so much on the learning curve. And you know Many people know you through your work with IJ, these just seminal cases that have changed the game for parents um, as they seek different, um, sometimes better educational opportunities for their for their children. Um, so you um, were with IJ for a long time, a founder, and the Goldwater Institute doing strong work around school choice. But in 2016, you were appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court. Um, so- We're really curious to know what it's like serving as a Supreme Court justice, the kinds of cases that you see, and how that prior work with IJ and Goldwater shaped your understanding of of the work that you do today.
2: Wow, that's that's an excellent question. Um, I had certainly never aspired to be a judge. And in fact, when you become a public interest lawyer, you really have to... um, be willing to give up any um, uh, ambition that you might have had to ever be a judge. And the main reason is that you take on controversial cases, you challenge powerful uh, adversaries, and that doesn't normally make for, um, (laughs) for becoming a judge. And in fact, when you think about it, even on the national stage, the only two that I can really think of are Thurgood Marshall and and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's it's just a very unusual path uh, to the judiciary. Um, And for me, I had pretty much written written off that possibility. But when Governor Doug Ducey was elected, we have a merit selection system here. um, And uh, so long as uh, you get through the Citizens Commission um, and Your name is sent to the governor. The governor can choose anyone off of that list. And there I was with six appeals court judges and me. Definitely Mm -hmm. the odd man out. (laughs) Uh, But the governor uh, reposed trust in me. And uh, and literally the very next week, uh, I was sitting on the Arizona Supreme Court where I had argued many times and literally never once envisioned myself uh, sitting on the court. It really is uh, a a very different uh, kind of position. Um, But the learning curve in many regards was not quite as steep as I thought it was going to be. A good public interest lawyer is trying to change the law, and the first thing that person has to ask is, can I possibly win this case? And in order to do that, you really have to be able to objectively size up the case and uh, look at at your odds of prevailing. And it's that objectively sizing up the case uh, that is what a judge does. Um, And I found it very easy to stop there and um, and not to go into advocacy mode uh, beyond that. I believe passionately in the rule of law that means as as Justice uh, Justice uh, Gorsett said during his confirmation hearings, a, a judge who believes in the rule of law will often disagree with his or her decisions mm-hmm. from a policy basis and and he has proven painfully correct mm-hmm. in that regard mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's um, but it's really been a blast. My colleagues are just so uh, uh, so amazing. The one thing um, that I, I feel like I've been able to contribute to the court is that unlike the US Supreme Court, where everyone on that court practiced constitutional law in some fashion uh, before joining the court, it's very unusual for a state Supreme Court justice to have constitutional expertise. And uh, when I joined the court, I was one of two who had uh, significant constitutional expertise before joining the court. And now I'm, I'm really the only one who has that kind of background. So um, I, uh, that's, that's un- unsurprisingly my, my personal niche. And uh, it's, it's really been a blast. The one, one last thing I will say is that my wife is a legislator and there's not a single day that goes by where she does not exchange some sort of crossword with, <laughs> with <laughs> one of her colleagues and for me it's exactly the opposite. I, in five years I have not exchanged a single crossword with any of my colleagues. It's just so so nice to be in an environment where uh, seven capable people are, are trying to reach the correct answer and uh, you are allowed to dissent, uh, and I take advantage of that uh, opportunity very, very frequently
1: that it's really amazing to think that um as a as the Supreme Court justice, you would be in a position where somehow your your blood pressure's a little bit lower than it might have been previous times in your yeah. career. <laughs> you're not at, <laughs> at odds with people. I think that would feel very counterintuitive to many of our listeners.. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your your latest book with Kate Hardiman, and the title of it's great. It's Unshackled: Freeing America's K to Twelve Education System. And boy, um, man, has twenty twenty shown a light on not only how much we need to unshackle the system, but, uh, but some states are, are moving to follow your home state, Arizona's lead and do just that. But, but in this book, um, you outline the country's this country's struggle. I mean, we struggle more than some other countries do, um, with this like outdated approach to K to 12 education. Could you tell us a little bit about your main arguments in the book and, and maybe some takeaways for lawmakers? And and thank thank you so much
2: for uh, giving me the chance to do that. This book is brand new this month, and um, w- you're right. The timing could not be better. I I refer to to COVID as our Katrina moment. Just as the New Orleans public schools after the uh, Hurricane Katrina literally started from scratch. Um, and really improved. I think that we have the opportunity to to do that right now. And um, not only are our legislatures and policymakers uh, considering significant changes, um, but parents themselves are acting on their own initiative to not only take advantage of whatever choices they might have, but create new choices. Um, And unfortunately, the, that latter category is limited to uh, parents with the affluence um, uh, to create their own resources, um, but I, I think that that uh, Americans probably hold our school system in the lowest regard that they that they ever have, and it, it was certainly bad um, before uh, the pandemic. Um, uh, we tried to. to bring a lot of statistics to bear and and to really put things in perspective, African-American students in in our country score at the same level on international tests as students from Kazakhstan and Albania. This is not what Brown versus Board of Education was all about. We are, uh, you know, the, the, the situation could not be more urgent and now, after lo- losing so much time during the pandemic, and uh, uh, kids, especially low-income kids, um, falling further and further behind, I'm really hoping that um, uh, that policymakers and parents will uh, will really move forward. Um, ultimately, the book is not just about school choice though we certainly advocate that and particularly education savings accounts that will allow families um, to choose the best education for their children not just uh, private schools but a whole range of educational options including distance learning buying services from public schools and that and that sort of thing tutors uh, computer software etc but also uh a dramatic decentralization and deregulation of the public system. If we've seen one thing during the pandemic, it's that our school system is incredibly inflexible. And uh, we think that power should be devolved in education to the level of the school. The school should be able to hire and fire its teachers. The school should be able to use the resources that are absorbed currently through the central bureaucracy, they should be able to pay teachers high salaries if they perform really well. And that with that sort of uh, decentralization, we think that public schools will finally have the ability to respond to what we hope will be a, a very uh, enhanced competitive reality.
1: Thank you for using that that keyword flexibility because I feel like that's exactly what even I keep um, reminding some of my friends who who actually have the privilege of having lived in very high performing local school districts and and some of them have commented during this time like I just can't believe this is happening and you know they feel locked in and I'll I'll say to some of them well now you have just a taste of how it feels to be a person who truly has no flexibility, who truly has no options. And I think that that's, it's a really important word, especially um, for those maybe people of privilege who, who take that for granted. Um, I want to pick up the one, something that you, you mentioned, you said, you know, you tried to approach this book with a lot of data. Um, And before I let Gerard, who I know is dying to talk to you, jump in here, I'd love (laughs) to know how, how research, because we do have a robust research on exactly what you're talking about, on the fact that devolving authority can make a difference for kids and that opening up options makes a difference for kids in terms of life outcomes, academic outcomes, you know, non-cognitive outcomes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the research informs not only this book, but your work in general? Uh, do you mean my work on the on the course? Well, I imagine your work on the court, it might be a little bit more difficult. If you could talk about that, I would love it. But yeah. it, I'm sure it very much informed your time at IJ as well as with Goldwater, correct?
2: Yes. And and certainly um, uh, certainly, data is not going to convince everybody. You know, They do have to go through the types of experiences that, as you just described, um, a lot of people are going through for the first time. My own daughter is a public school student. Her uh, doing virtual learning right now. Her school day, her tenth grade school day, ends at 11:30 a.m. Her classes are a half hour long. This is ridiculous. And you know, you go to almost any school district, and and uh, you're going to find stories like that. Um, but ultimately, the data that we really uh, tried to marshal, Kate Hardiman and I. Um, is focused on how bad our position is competitively with other countries, in particular China, which represents an existential threat against the United States. One of the statistics we, we found was that the 10% poorest students in Shanghai outperform the wealthiest 10% of American students on math, um, and that's just that's just breathtaking. We cannot allow that to continue. So, uh, so we used uh, these statistics really to to drive the argument um, both about uh, the uh, how bad the schools are. You use the term before high performing school districts, high performing perhaps compared to other American school districts. Not high performing compared to Chinese school districts. Unfortunately, we don't have a single school district in the United States that compares favorably to to most Chinese school districts. So, just really illustrating the gravity of the problem and the urgency of the problem. If we can, if we can get that point across, and and the pandemic is helping us get that point across, uh, then perhaps. Um, people who have been resistant to change will will uh, will become advocates for change.
0: Justice Bullock, it's so good to hear your voice and so good to call you Justice Bullock.
2: <laughs> it is so great to be with you, my friend. Right
0: I want the listeners to put in perspective just how long um, the Justice and I have worked together, sometimes in person, sometimes virtually. So in 1992... Uh, I'm working at the Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles, California. Um, A year earlier, I meet a guy named Kevin Teasley who comes to our school to talk about a uh, a voucher amendment. And then there are two other people in the 1992 three realm uh, who played a role in helping me think about what vouchers look like and what it meant for real students. Uh, One was Jim Blue who was doing some work in the LA area and the other one was uh, Clint Bullock uh, who was in the, believe in the LA Times article I believe it was 92, maybe 93, talking about the importance of this amendment and school choice. And what was so important to me is that I had just lost one of my best students who could have benefited from a voucher. Her mom and dad chose to be a one income household and things changed. That was in the early 90s, 2004. uh, The Justice and I are on a panel discussion at Cato Institute with Dr. Howard Fuller and Secretary Rod Page talking about Brown v. Board of Education and what a school choice look like. We would then later spend together, some time together in the uh, late 2000s when I was uh, working at BAO, the Black Alliance for Educational Options. He was leading what is today the American Federation of Children. And today we're on a phone call. He's a secretary and I am uh, a sidekick. So at least one of us has moved up in life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave that one, Gerard. <laughs> I'll talk to you later.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I'm sure you will. But it's really good to put all that in perspective, because for those of you who may not know Justice Bullock, not only is he bringing a breadth of scholarship, constitutional history to the position, but I saw him on the ground working with lawmakers, talking to families, doing the real work. So he's doing head and heart. And glad to have you here, which is a good way for me to segue into my first question. So in the wake of the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Espinoza, as well as results from the 2020 election, those at the national and state levels who support the status quo in K-12, who oppose private school choice, they're likely to be pretty active across the country this year, uh, and possibly for the next two for sure. What are some of the possible legal, bureaucratic, and educational outcomes of the Espinoza ruling that we should think about?
2: So um, the Espinoza case, uh, for for your listeners who who are not familiar with it, is a decision where the state of Montana decided to make um, certain educational scholarships available for use in private schools, but forbade them in religious schools. And the U.S. Supreme Court, by the same uh, resounding five to four vote, that it has decided every school choice case, um, that ruled that uh, when a state decides to make uh, funds available for use in private schools, it may not discriminate against religious providers. And that's, that's really uh, significant because many states uh, make opportunities available uh, for, for kids in, in private schools. And uh many of them discriminate against uh against religious schools. Um and under the US Constitution now uh that is no longer permissible as a result of the Espinoza decision. I think right now um with the US Supreme Court and uh the appointment of, of Justice Barrett and um <clears throat> uh the uh her her two uh, other um, recently appointed colleagues, Kavanaugh and and Gorsuch, um, this is the strongest pro school choice court that that we've had in our lifetimes. Um, and so what I what I would simply say is that the legal terrain is no longer at the national level an obstacle. Uh, to school choice and to education reform, but rather permits a greater range of, of, uh, of such opportunities um, than ever before. And it still remains though for uh, advocates to take advantage of that opportunity and to, uh, to pass legislation in their own states. And I know that the realm of the possibility is far more limited for example in massachusetts uh, than it is in arizona or uh or florida Um, and in fact there seems to be a pretty high correlation between states that need choice opportunities the most and are most resistant to choice opportunities but um uh, but certainly that the legal obstacles that that faced us when we began uh, this journey in Milwaukee in 1990 um, are no longer so daunting. And, um, uh, and impediments at the state level, such as constitutional provisions uh, that were interpreted to prohibit uh, support for um, students attending religious schools, they, they no longer can be used in a, a discriminatory manner. So um now is the time for uh for for people to to consider all sorts of 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 options and uh uh the odds of them being struck down I think are are far less than ever before.
0: And that shows tremendous growth and change going back to when you were doing the early work in Milwaukee um in the early 1990s. So that's a K-12 question. Let's bring in a higher education perspective and link it to this conversation. So in America's decentralized and choice-driven higher education system, which is still the envy of the world, states and the federal government support the goal of achieving an educated citizenry through scholarships and loans, whether the student goes to Notre Dame, Yeshiva, BYU, or to a public college university. What does religion and schooling, or better yet, why does religion and schooling remain such a 3rd rail issue in the K-12 system in ways we don't see it with higher ed?
2: Well, first, Gerard, I I really appreciate your (laughs) juxtaposition of our higher education system with our our K-12 system. It's just head-spinning that what we accept and what we demand at the post-secondary level uh, which is complete freedom of choice um, and uh, that funding will follow the student um, is exactly what we are so resistant to at the K 12 system. And the results are just astoundingly different as, as a result of that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to explain. Uh, with any certainty, why it is that the legal obstacles uh, with regard to religious schools have been so much greater um, at the K 12 level than at the post secondary level. Like, there has never been a challenge to the GI Bill, even though you can use the GI Bill um, at Yeshiva University, you can use it you know, literally at any, any university, religious or secular. Um, And uh, yet there's just been tremendous consternation, uh, as you described it, a a third rail in the K-12 area. For a time, the U.S. Supreme Court latched on to the notion um, that because K-12 students were more um, impressionable, that there was a greater constitutional risk of indoctrination. Um, by allowing uh, financial support for students attending religious schools at the K-12 level as opposed to the college level. But that really dissipated over time. And now um, <laughs> the, the, the justices who, who oppose um, uh, assistance for students in attending religious schools at the K-12 system, they, they literally ignore the college example these days because it's it's simply uh, um, a criticism that they uh, they cannot answer. I remember when Justice Breyer in the Zellman case that uh, that upheld school vouchers in in 2002. Um, he he argued that uh, uh, um, that if we had uh, a voucher program, it would lead to religious strife uh, of the level that we saw in Northern Ireland and, and Bosnia. Um, but we've had this type of system at the college level for, for pretty much ever, and we've never seen that, that, uh, uh, that anything uh, approaching that, that level of, of uh, confrontation or division. Um, And in fact, the the greater individual autonomy you allow, the less likely you are to have that sort of division.
0: It's amazing the intellectual and sometimes community fear-based tactics that people use. Now, of course, I'm not saying the justice said that to create fear or consternation, but I remember working on a two-year fellowship in Milwaukee um, at a point where we had to lift the cap that was placed on the voucher. And just to read what the opponents had to say, of course, some of it was a racial Armageddon will take place or would have fights in the street. And when, in fact, actually having gone to, visited, interviewed, spoken to families, teachers, and educators who had their children in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, there were levels of tolerance that were supported in ways they did not see in the public school system, levels of ethnic racial religious diversity not seen in other ways and in some ways families found themselves working across lines because of the choice program and so we often hear that i even heard it after zelman so i'm so glad you made that distinction like to just end with another question and this is one that's more let's say reflective we now have a generation of reformers in the private school choice movement in particular who will grab a hold of your wonderful book and the others that you've written and get an idea of what it was like to use the courts as a mechanism, uh, one of many to bring in really good reform. But a number of them grew up only seeing the legislative branch as the way to go to make change. Surely there's some reasons for having a small footprint for the court. As, you know, if we, as we have people on the, on the, in the listening audience who are thinking about this, are there one or two books that influence some of your early thinking about not per se the appropriate role the courts can play in this, but what role that judges can play in helping us think broadly about school choice?
2: Well, um not not really in particular. In fact, um when when I started out, of course, in, in my legal career, there were no school choice programs. <laughs> um, and so there there wasn't a lot of writing on on the subject, but there were um two liberal law professors at the University of Berkeley that were highly influential in my thinking, and their names were uh, Jack Coons and stephen sugarman and they argued that the left had made a spectacular um uh, a spectacular mistake in pursuing forced busing which was the, the dominant uh remedial strategy at the time um as a way to uh, vindicate the rights secured by brown versus board of education and instead that a voucher remedy uh would be more appropriate um and be, th- that would allow uh black children uh and their families to pursue whatever educational opportunities they desired and that would also put them on a true level playing field with white families and that book was was extremely influential to me you know certainly on the policy side uh Milton Friedman was was my <laughs> my intellectual lodestar um But on the legal side, that made me uh, think that there might be uh, some serious action that uh, or uh, uh, an approach that could be taken. And in fact, I set out to be a a school teacher and ended up becoming a lawyer Um, for precisely that reason. I I felt that the the chance for systemic change through the courts was uh, was greater than um, doing it one student at a time. I have to tell you that I have some real optimism in this regard. And, uh, you know, I still speak on this topic a fair amount at law schools. And every time I do, at least one student in the audience uh, was a Teach for America student. And uh, every single time that student has become radicalized and has gone to law school precisely. <laughs> to um, try to use the, the courts to achieve sy- uh, systemic change. And and I'm not talking about, you know, like overthrowing the Constitution or or uh, harnessing the courts to do things they're not intended to do. Every single state has an educational guarantee in its Constitution. And so it is entirely legitimate um, to use those um, uh, those provisions, toward those ends, and I'll, I'll conclude on on this by saying uh, that I've I've seen a far greater coming together of the right and left in this regard. For example, you may be I, I suspect you're very familiar with uh, the Vergara litigation that took place a few years in in California, where uh, liberal uh, lawyers challenged um, a number of public school policies, including seniority policies, um, that meant that the worst teachers were teaching in predominantly minority schools. And unfortunately, um, this did not have a successful ending, although um, my friend uh, Justice Liu on the California Supreme Court and one of his colleagues uh, wrote a a passionate uh, opinion saying why the court should have. The Supreme Court should have taken that case. But um, but I'm seeing more and more lawyers and law students of goodwill really trying to f- figure out what the core problems are in education and trying to find a way to use the law, the legal guarantee of equal educational opportunities uh, to achieve a just result.
0: Well, Justice Bolick, uh, Carl and I, thank you for joining us today. You provided some very good wisdom, uh, good stats for us to look at. I'm glad you brought in the international con- uh, context because, as we know, students in Virginia aren't competing just with students in California. we are competing with students all over the world. Thank you so much for what you do. Please, those who are listening, uh, purchase his book as well as the others. And uh, we look forward to having you on board at another time.
2: It's been such a pleasure to be with you. Good luck in all of your work.
0: Thank you. Thank you. The Tweet of the Week is, of course, for School Choice Week, and it's from at School Choice Week from the 25th of this month. It says, directly after our kickoff event, an annual hashtag, School Choice Meetup will commence. Anyone can join the conversation by using the hashtag #SchoolChoice. choice. If you're in need of inspiration, feel free to check out other examples of what you can post to our website. And I recommend you do so because there's over 33,000 celebrations across the country. And again, happy School Choice Week.
1: Happy School Choice Week. And Gerard, when you tweet during the School Choice Week, you're going to tag me on Twitter, right? I will do so. Yeah. Okay. Cause you're getting me in trouble. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Gerard next week, we're going to be speaking with the, with Tom Carroll, who is the superintendent of the Archdiocese of Boston Catholic schools. And of course this is great timing. What with the new book at all that I mentioned at the outset of the show, but really excited to have superintendent Carroll on. And I think he's going to have a lot to say about, um, you know, what Catholic schools, especially here in Boston, which, um, is home to a lot of Catholic schools or, always has been, um, what he has to say about how the pandemic has affected his schools, his teachers, his students and forward. So we're looking forward to that until next week. I will be I'll be looking for your tweets and um, and certainly tagging you in mind. My friend
0: we will do so until we tag team again.
1: <laughs> Have a good one.